Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Today, we ask the question that has crossed almost every employee's mind, but very few employees' lips. Why do companies go woke? Before we uncover the answer, I'd like to give a shout out to one organisation that isn't going woke anytime soon. The Spectator Australia magazine is everything wokists aren't. Bold, intellectually curious, sceptical of authority, and capitalist. But never fear, because with digital subscriptions for just $16.99 a month, with one month free to boot, you'd swear we weren't. To take advantage of this sensational offer, go to spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. Something magical happens between the third and fourth beer at company social events. The guards drop, the awkward formality subsides, and the boss normally heads home to the wife or husband and kids. It's at this moment that unspoken office truths start to emerge. Geez, Ed from sales is a tosser. Or, so what are you really making? Or, I actually quite fancy Lucy in accounting. It's only after six or seven beers, though, that the sacred cow enters the conversation. So what was that whole D&I module about then? That unconscious bias trainer told me I'm a racist. I don't think I am. And eventually, all this stuff just does my head in. The creep of identity politics and woke ideology into the corporate world has been the biggest change to corporate culture in the last decade, but everyone is afraid to talk about it critically. Well, almost everyone. Peter Klein is an American economist and global thought leader in managerial and organisational strategy. He holds the W.W. Carruth Endowed Chair at Baylor University in Texas, and he has written several very successful books, the most recent of which is titled why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Company. Peter came onto my radar in 2022 for a paper he co-authored which made headlines in business sections the world over. It was simply titled, Why Do Companies Go Woke? Peter Klein, welcome to Australiana. Well, thanks for having me. Let's get the definitions out of the way first. I'm conscious that whilst almost everyone who works in an office will have been exposed to wokeness or woke capitalism in one way, shape, or form. There are several people who may not be aware of what those terms actually mean. Can you define them for us? Yeah, the term woke has been uh, has become politically charged, especially in the US, but I'm sure in Australia as well. And there are some folks who I would describe as proponents of woke ideas who were sort of disclaiming the label. Oh, no, no, we don't mean that. We just mean kindness or being nice to people, or we just mean fairness and truth and justice. That's not at all what we have in mind uh, in this uh, research project. We have a specific definition of woke 
in mind, like all definitions, right? It you know has has pros and cons, but I think most people have a fairly good understanding of what we mean when we use the term the way we do, which is wokeness refers to a primary concern with issues related to social justice, so-called, you know, especially as they concern things like race, gender, sexual orientation, sexual identity. But woke is a little bit more specific than that in that wokeness represents a particular philosophical perspective on that set of ideas. The philosophy originates from what is sometimes called critical theory, a branch of philosophy that emerged in Germany uh, in the 19th century, the so-called Frankfurt School, also French postmodernist thought fits into this story. But what does what, what are these philosophical origins or foundations? They have certain pillars such as a belief in the primacy of subjective personal experience over sort of objective data and scientific reasoning and argument and so forth, a belief that individuals are defined primarily by their group characteristics and that people think and act primarily in accord with characteristics of their groups, and likewise an emphasis on you know, sort of social structures and power relations among groups as the primary determinant of you know, how history plays out and indeed how ideas are decided. So the idea that truth is positional, truth claims are positional, your argument cannot be evaluated without talking about your power position in society or in an organization. That is really fundamental to woke attitudes and beliefs. This sort of oppressor-victim dynamic that all situations have to be analyzed in terms of who has power, how is that power being used, and how does that power influence people's beliefs and actions. One other aspect of wokeness that comes from Marxist theory, why you sometimes hear the term cultural Marxism. So what people mean by cultural Marxism is, you know, Marxist tools and concepts and analytical frames not applied to, you know, factory conditions and so forth, but applied more broadly to the culture. So the idea that you have an exploiter and an exploited class, an exploiting and an exploited class comes out of classical Marxism, but it's not capitalists and workers. It might be, in this case, males being the exploiters, females being the exploited, or it might be in terms of race or one of these other demographic demographic characteristics. But there's also the idea that history progresses sort of inexorably in one particular direction. You know, Marx thought there was this inevitable trend, you know, capitalism would be replaced by socialism and communism and so forth. And within wokeness, there's also the idea that the move towards more, shall we say, progressive attitudes on social and cultural issues is sort of inevitable. Where you see that is where people use the term, you know, so-and-so is on the wrong side of history. Well, I mean, historians would tell you history doesn't necessarily, we don't know where history is going to go. But if you believe that anybody who's resisting a particular sort of progressive attitude or belief is sort of messing things up by trying to hold progress back, that again comes straight out of Marx and other social scientists, but it's been embraced by people who are interested primarily in social and cultural ideas today. This is fascinating because the historical arch enemy of Marxism is capitalism, and yet so many companies have embraced what at face value could be perceived as a Marxist ideology. We'll get to why you think that's happened in a moment. But first, 
let's put this in a historical context because things like social responsibility programs, things like affirmative action quotas, these are nothing new. Is wokeness and woke corporate policy merely an extension of long-run trends or are we seeing something entirely different and, and new? It's a great question. Yes, in some sense, I think it is a continuation of a trend that really goes back maybe to the 1950s and 1960s with the civil rights movement and the first round of so-called affirmative action policies. In one sense, wokeness is a continuation or acceleration of those older trends, but we also think it's qualitatively different, again, because of these philosophical foundations that we've already described. So, you know, one can believe in a particular labor market policy, for example, to promote, uh, to, to remedy past discrimination, let's say, without buying into the full, you know, menu of woke attitudes, beliefs. When you hear people say math is racist or XYZ is a, is a, you know, manifestation of perpetuating whiteness and so forth. I mean, that's a whole, there's a coded language there. There's, of some sort of in-group, out-group signaling going on. None of that was really present with the older movements for companies to think more about social, cultural, and political uh, ideas, though obviously you can see some commonality. And we also think when we get into some of the mechanisms that we think are pushing companies to embrace wokeness, there are also some parallels with reasons why companies might embrace ESG or stakeholder governance or something similar to that. That makes sense. One more question to set the scene. You said in your paper that this is a cross-industry phenomenon, but at the same time, there are some industries which are adopting woke policies more aggressively than others, the media, tech, entertainment, uh, about three examples. Why do you think that this trend is accelerating at different rates or there are different appetites, I guess, in different industries for these types of policies? Yeah. I don't have a solid answer for that, but I have some conjecture. Part of our argument is that uh, woke policies or the woke policies that we're interested in do not primarily benefit you know, shareholders or other stakeholders who would conventionally be included as part of the firm's you know, sort of key uh, uh, you know, ownership or, or management or governance block. In other words, the puzzle we're trying to explain is why companies embrace wokeness, even though it doesn't seem to improve the bottom line. So one argument you could make is in some industries where margins are thinner, where competition is tougher, and where kind of the market reaction from customers or from uh, competitors, you know, makes it very difficult to make a mistake, you know, a very unforgiving environment, companies are a lot less willing to experiment with wokeness other than at a purely superficial superficial level. But if you're in the news media or entertainment where the, the, the potential cost from embracing wokeness is smaller, if you're in manufacturing, right, if wokeness leads to lower quality manufactured products or more manufacturing defects or not being able to satisfy customer needs or whatever, I'm not saying that it would in every case, but if wokeness has an immediate impact on productivity and profitability, then you're going to be less tolerant. Management will be less willing to allow woke ideas and so forth to, to prolifer proliferate. Whereas, you know, if you're, if you're Google or Apple, 
right? Most of the workforce is already pretty woke as defined above. Many customers either themselves are woke or they are, are pretty neutral or indifferent to the company, you know, embracing wokeness. And, you know, woke programmers can program just as well as non-woke programmers. Then, you know, there isn't a lot of harm for Apple or Google or Twitter. And I, I use Twitter. Twitter is deliberately chosen because things may have changed there, yes. right? If you find... In the as in the Twitter case, you know that I mean it appears we don't know everything, but it looks like management has significantly has made the workforce significantly smaller, <laughs> and the product still seems to be functional. You know that suggests that there was a lot of surplus that there were employees in HR and DEI and so forth who weren't really who, whose whose work wasn't core to the company's mission. The company may actually be able to form, pr- perform better by you know reducing some of that you know kind of surplus labor that's an example where now it looks like excessive wokeness could be harmful and so we would expect to see competition among tech companies leading others to sort of trim their uh, uh, unnecessary labor yes we'll get to the impacts of woke policies on companies a bit later on and i also want to hold fire on how companies go woke, which is the central thesis of your paper, and it's and it's a very compelling one. A bit more on the why, why companies choose to go woke. Now, you actually just flagged a couple of reasons which some people may think are behind a move to woke corporate policy, but actually there is no evidence to suggest that they are motivating forces. One is you suggest that there is no real re- evidence that companies' financial performance improves through Work policies. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So again, the kinds of things that we're defining as woke are typically things that are not directly related to producing the product, for example. So for example, advertising and marketing campaigns that feature a particular, um, you know, try to reflect certain values that are not embraced by the customer base, by the core customer base, would be would be an example of a woke attitude that does not seem obviously to improve performance. You know, in the U.S., a classic example might be the Disney company, right? So Disney, of course, has been in the news quite a bit for what it's done and what it hasn't done, particularly in the state in which it operates, Florida, which is becoming has a governor who explicitly promotes himself as an anti-woke uh, yes. governor. There's no evidence whatsoever to suggest, in fact, survey data implies that the typical Disney patron, someone who watches Disney movies and consumes, you know, goes to Disney World, is not at all interested in the sorts of things that we're describing as woke. So some employees at Disney clearly are enthusiastic about wokeness. Senior management, we're not quite sure. Middle, some, some parts of middle management are clearly enthusiastic for woke, but it's not obvious why this would improve Disney's bottom line. So essentially what we're saying is, look, if you have an organization, and it could be anything from a startup to a giant corporation, in, in which we can show that being woke is exactly what customers want or allows the firm to attract the most talented employees. Well, I mean, then there's no problem. There's nothing to discuss. Then then there would be no puzzle to explain the sudden... Now, we, we might still wonder, why did it change so much in the last five years? How come six years ago, customers didn't want this, employees didn't? But still, there wouldn't be that much of a story. We're, we're arguing that uh, if you look at 
uh, survey data on attitudes of customers, attitudes of typical workers, and attitudes of executives. Attitudes of uh, DEI people are a little bit different. Do, do not show any increase, any rapid increase in the embrace of these woke ideas and practices. So it can't be that companies are simply responding to what the marketplace wants, because otherwise it would be easy for us to detect these changes in preferences among key stakeholders, and we don't see that. Yes, I think paradox is precisely the right word here. You think about marketing functions and their job is to grow the customer base. And yet so many of them are now specifically doing things that annoy their customers. The best recent example in Australia is from Seafolly, it's a bikini brand. And their marketing strategy in the past was simple but effective of find a beautiful young lady and put a Seafolly bikini on her. And they've just come out and put a trans person as the bikini model in their most recent campaign. And there's been a very pronounced backlash. So teasing out this question of why a bit further, your paper puts forward two very logical motives. One, we think this will make us money. And two, we think this is the right thing to do. I'm aware they're not mutually exclusive, but of those two motives, which one do you think is the more powerful driver towards woke policies in most companies? I think both of those motives are clearly in play. A lot of what looks like corporate wokeness is this so-called instrumental wokeness, meaning we're pretending to be woke because we think it gives us some kind of competitive advantage. It helps our bottom line. You know, maybe some of these advertising campaigns, like the one that you mentioned, there was one in, it was Hershey's of Canada, I believe, that also for International Women's Month in February, put a trans person on the candy bar wrapper and as the face of the advertising campaign, a trans woman, a male to female transgender person. You know, but this got a lot of attention. Is this just a way of building brand awareness? I mean, you could make that argument. Uh, indeed, some some of the most enthusiastic proponents of wokeness are somewhat skeptical of what corp big corporations do. You know, yes, we made our we changed our corporate logo to have the pride flag as the background. You know, we made it the rainbow colors for a few weeks, and then we went back to our regular logo. Yeah, that that doesn't actually do anything for for, for the people that uh, those symbols are allegedly representing. It's what they call you know so called woke washing, and. To me, there's an analogy here with some of the things you asked about before, like CSR, for example. I mean, if you're a coffee chain, Starbucks or whatever, you know, if customers will pay a premium for a beverage that is advertised as coming from sustainable farms, okay, that that doesn't cost the company anything. I mean, that's not that's not sacrificing profitability for social justice, so-called. That's just maximizing profits. That's just in, increase, increasing firm performance. Some of corporate wokeness surely has that character. And, and some of it, you know, you're kind of doing it because it's the thing to do. Everybody's doing it at least a little bit. You don't want to be the odd, odd man out. So you sort of go along with the trend. But that begs the question of how the trend sort of got started in the first place. Why is anybody doing it? Right? Again, with the exception of maybe you know, a startup company that is founded by a group of super woke employees and their corporate mission is to promote wokeness. Aside from that, why is it occurring? And that's where this kind of normative motive comes in. But, you know, our, our story, which, you know, as you know, is that it really isn't the organization as a whole 
that's promoting normative wokeness, and it really isn't your managers, it's someone else. That's a cliffhanger for listeners, and I'm going to build the suspense a little further by pausing to remind them of the wonderful print and print and digital bundles available to them from The Spectator Australia. There's content about work corporates, specifically every other day of the week. I was reading a cracking article from Edmund Stephen only this morning on the role that woke big tech companies are playing enabling the Yes campaign in the voice debate. Pick up a subscription at spectator.com.au forward slash join. Okay, with excitement now at fever pitch. Peter, lay out your thesis for how companies go woke. So I'll confess that we were inspired to come up with this thesis, to offer to, to, to offer it as a theoretical explanation for this paradox by observing an industry that my co-author and I are very close to, namely higher ed. So we've my co-author and I have been, you know, professors for several decades, and we've observed universities, of course, going extremely woke and even being politically correct, you know, which is sort of the predecessor, I guess, to wokeness. And kind of the surprise to us was that you know, one often thinks, well, yes, of course, universities are going to be way out there on the frontier on whatever kind of issues, you know, one is talking about because that's the nature of a university. It's filled with all these intellectuals. They're ideologically committed to the avant-garde and to radical new ideas. We don't think that's actually the case. We think the average mm-hmm. university professor is not especially politically correct, as we used to call it, and is not necessarily committed to wokeness, nor do we think that university presidents, boards of directors, uh, curators, whatever you call them, we don't think senior leadership at most institutions of higher learning are necessarily committed to woke ideology. However, there is a hard core, or rather I should say there's a core of very committed supporters to woke ideology, which are typically kind of found at the middle levels of the organization. So in HR or the DEI team or at universities, we have administrators that do sort of student life programming. Again, I don't want to make this all about higher ed, but one of the observations about universities in recent decades is that the number of professors hasn't increased that much. And the number of executives hasn't increased that much either, but the middle ranks of administrators have just exploded. So, so what, what, what we observed is, you know, the, the strongest advocates for certain kinds of woke policies are the second assistant vice provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? It's not the president, nor is it the students, nor is it the rank and file faculty. It's these sort of empowered middle managers who are responsible for certain kinds of programming. In the corporate world, this would typically be people in HR, people who are responsible for running diversity training programs, people in public relations and some parts of marketing who are really strong advocates of woke ideas, woke imagery, woke language. And our argument is that both senior management and lower level employees sort of go along, even though they're not necessarily enthusiastic about, nor do they really understand or feel comfortable with these policies and these actions, but they're terrified of being portrayed as being anti-woke, you know, holding back the wheels of progress, as we mentioned before. So they delegate a lot of authority to people who are strongly committed to one specific viewpoint, one specific ideology. 
Yes, and that goes to the specific ability that middle managers have to drive these policies, which is one of three reasons why you say that middle managers are particularly well positioned. The second is that this presents itself as an opportunity for middle managers to increase their relative power in the organization. Can you expand on that part? Yeah, sure. I mean, imagine that, you know, the spectator was considering, you know, uh, changing its having less print content and more podcasts, right? And you happen to be, you know, the top podcasting authority within the organization. You're assistant vice president for 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 for, for this kind of medium, right? And 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 you're in a board meeting or you're in a committee meeting or you're in a, you know, you're having a discussion in the firm about where the priorities should be. How much should we invest in the traditional print publication, the physical paper? Uh, I, I'm not even sure if you still produce a physical version. <clears throat> Will in the Spectator Australia production studio here telling our listeners that we most certainly do have a print magazine and you can get a print subscription at spectator.com.au. Also telling our editorial team that I have no plans for a podcasting related coup. Back to you, Peter. How many copies should we print? How much effort should go to print media on the website? How much should go to video, audio? You know, if you were in a position to influence that discussion and all you do is audio podcasts, you know, it wouldn't be shocking if you were to come out as a strong proponent, right, of, of, a, of a podcaster-led model, especially if you're the only one in the organization who feels comfortable with that medium. So self-interest wins out, basically. Absolutely. I mean, and this is not a slight, this is not a criticism of DEI personnel, for example, but of course it would be in their interest to make sure that the firm is committed to a set of actions that makes them more necessary than they otherwise would be. And even people who don't have DEI in their title specifically potentially see an opportunity to increase their sphere of influence by taking this turf for themselves? I think that's right. Yeah. Anyone who sort of buys into the program, again, using the appropriate language. And as we mentioned in the paper, there's a lot of terms that are really odd to most English speakers, but it's sort of the natural, you know, centering whiteness or the Latinx community and so forth. People don't speak this way outside of a very narrow community. But, but if you want to make yourself part of that community, make yourself potentially more valuable, your job more secure, embracing that language, embracing that imagery can help you. And Will, if I may jump in with one clarifying point, you, you, you hinted at this early in the podcast, but I want to state it very explicitly for all our listeners. One sort of rhetorical move that proponents of wokeness make is they say, oh, you're criticizing our DEI programs. What are you opposed to diversity? Are you do you oppose equity? You don't like inclusion. You think people shouldn't be included. They should be excluded. You know, it's like the old joke: one can oppose the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Opposing that doesn't mean you're anti-democratic, right? Or that you're anti-people or anti-republic or anti-Korea. Quite the opposite, right? So the North Korean communists can label themselves whatever they want. But obviously, that's a that's a trick on their part, right? Yes. And it's a way of saying, oh, if you don't support us, you oppose democracy. When I use the t a term like DEI, I don't mean diversity the way you would define that term in the dictionary. That that's a, a an idiosyncratic label that means a specific approach to 
the issues that we've been talking about here today. So we, we must never allow proponents of woke ideas to retreat. You know, in philosophy, they call this the, the Mott and Bailey technique. It refers to, you know, medieval castles where you have the part that you can, the stronghold, and then you have sort of the part that's easy for the enemy to get to. And when the enemy attacks the, the, the easy part, you retreat to the stronghold. So what people often do is they say, you oppose DEI. Well, DEI just means being nice to people, just means treating people with respect. People should be treated with respect. No, that isn't at all what it means. We're talking about very specific kinds of programs and activities, not the general ideas that their terms uh, seem to represent. Social justice would be a classic example, one that F.A. Hayek and others wrote about back at, wrote about back in the middle of the 20th century. When we say social justice, capital S, capital J, we don't mean social justice in the colloquial sense. We mean a very specific ideological program that uh, many reasonable people don't support. Yes, this has been the the evil genius of the left in recent times. They've taken control of language. And they've then created a false dichotomy that says, agree with absolutely everything that we believe, or you're a bad person, or you're evil. And what they're asking people to agree with is very specific, and it is a very revolutionary world view. Now, whatever you think of woke policies, we must be able to agree that that is not good for public debate and it's not conducive to open and transparent conversations in the workplace. And this is the interesting thing for me. You said before we went on air that you thought this was actually a pretty vanilla paper. You were surprised by the level of controversy that it has stirred up. And I think that's because people have gone, wow, I I didn't know I was allowed to talk about this stuff. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think so many people are afraid to say what they believe in corporate environments today? Yeah, well, for, for precisely the reasons that you mention, uh, people who are proponents of wokeness have used language and they've sort of tried, and I guess successfully, to define the terms of the debate so that even, even to do what we've done in this paper, which is not to critique or attack wokeness, but to treat it as a phenomenon that, that needs an explanation, even that is perceived as somehow inappropriate or unethical or, or mean-spirited or hateful. We, I, I've been a little bit surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, by some responses we've gotten from fellow academics who, without really engaging our thesis at all, have essentially said, well, it's wrong of you even to talk like this, right? I mean, to, to analyze wokeness as if it might not be a good thing is like to you know, write a critical paper on puppies or something. I mean, uh, how can you even entertain the possibility that wokeness might be anything other than kindness and universal justice and treating people with dignity and so forth? Which, I mean, look, if someone wants to make that claim, that's fine. But we would love to see some positive engagement with our thesis, like any other scientific thesis. It can be critiqued. It can be challenged theoretically or empirically, but there really hasn't been much engagement. No one has really offered a good argument for why our thesis might be incorrect. They've just sort of said, how dare you bring this up? So to summarize very simply, if you look at a company as the C-suite at the top, frontline employees at the bottom, and then this glut of middle management 
in the middle, it's that middle management layer that is a driving force behind wokeness. I want to investigate that middle management by looking at two departments specifically, marketing and HR. Marketing driving the woke push on the external side and HR driving it in terms of internal culture. I can't get my head around. I know we've had this discussion now for 20 minutes, but I can't get my head around how marketing is responsible for growing the customer base and at the same time they are adopting woke messaging that customers don't like. Talk to me about this this tension within the marketing department. Yeah, so clearly some of these woke campaigns have been unpopular. Uh, the Gillette Razor, uh, uh, I think mm. it was a year and a half ago, is a famous example where Gillette put out a uh, marketing campaign criticizing toxic masculinity. The ads didn't have anything to do with razors or shaving, promoting a particular view on maleness and and you know problems with power relations among the sexes. And and Gillette's razor sales took a took a huge hit, plummeted. Yes. And no one would be surprised to see a, a razor ad with transgender female to male, sorry, male to female people shaving. You know, and that, that being part of you know the best a woman can get would be uh, yes. uh, would be part of this as well. It's so I, we assume, I, I assume that people who are running those marketing campaigns lost their jobs. Right. So, I mean, you know, Gillette is still doing okay, but we assume that there is some response to market feedback, but you would think that, or it's, it seems likely that a little bit more leeway and slack is given because whoever came up with that anti-toxic masculinity ad campaign can say, oh yeah, well, it looks like that didn't work so well for us, but clearly our, my heart was in the right place. Clearly we were trying to promote justice that gosh, that isn't going to work. Maybe because you know our customer base is evil, evil people who don't care about justice or whatever. That's a shame. Maybe we'll try again in a slightly different way, as opposed to in a conventional, you know, pre woke era where you know if a marketing campaign bombs or look at you know a lot of films, a lot of Hollywood films that promote are explicitly woke have not done well at the box office. And look, I mean, that's a the movie cinema industry is an industry just like any other, and there are investors who want to make financial returns. But you know, partly because of the nature of that industry for reasons that we mentioned before, there's probably more tolerance for woke failure than there would be in manufacturing, let's say. So some of that, it's, it's not unlike the book publishing industry where you know, publishers, it, it's hard to predict which book will be a bestseller. And so most editors have a pretty broad portfolio of books the, the, the investors just want one or two to be a hit. They don't really care about the others, which gives editors a lot of latitude to indulge their own personal preferences in which books they will publish. And so that's that could be a reason why you see a little bit of a bias. You know, more kind of wokish books get published than anti-woke. And I think it's the same thing, same thing with cinema. You just need one blockbuster, a few other movies that don't do so well. Well, if they were ideologically you know, pure and true, we'll, we'll cut you some slack on that. That makes a lot of sense. The HR department is leading the push to change corporate culture internally and moving it towards a more woke orientation. Your earlier comments about Marxism come to mind here because traditionally HR departments have been at the bottom of the ladder when it comes to corporate prestige. How do you think about the changing role of HR and specifically how 
their job is evolving to from being an administrative function to something which they may argue has more purpose around it in pushing a particular ideological worldview. Yeah, if I could um, answer in a slightly roundabout way, start with something more general than get to the specific Please. answer. You know, f- f- HR and similar functions that are either middle management or lower middle management or sort of execution, n- n- the traditional conventional way we understand those roles is that, you know, they're intermediaries between the executive level, the C-suite, and employees of the firm. And those middle layers, they perform specific functions. We, we, in the paper referring to existing literature, we characterize these as bridging and brokerage. So the bridging function is helping to channel flows of information up and down, you know, helping to interpret management dictates to lower level employees, helping senior management to understand what people on the ground are doing and how they're feeling and so forth. And there's also kind of a brokerage function, which is to help negotiate agreements help to bring people together, make sure that everyone is on the same page. Neither one of those is like a strategy initiation role. Those are strategy implementation roles. But part of what we're arguing is that we often see in woke companies, middle managers becoming the the, the initiators of, of new ideas and strategic change rather than the implementers. And to get to your specific question, I mean, it's very simple to explain with a sort of self-interest story, right? So, you know, if the function of HR is to make sure the contract gets filled out properly, take care of the paperwork and the tax issues and so forth, well, I mean, that's an important role, but it's not a role in which one can have a lot of influence on company policy. However, if the company embraces a rule that before anyone can be interviewed, we need to have a certain kind of diverse pool of applicants. And before a position can even be approved for hire, there has to be some compelling justification of how it will improve diversity and equity and inclusion within the organization. And then the interview process has to be structured in a certain way and certain kinds of information has to be provided to make sure that diversity goals are being achieved. Well, not only Does that mean a lot more work for the HR function? It means a bigger HR staff, more hours, higher pay, and so forth. But it also means more de facto influence on who gets hired, right? Which, of course, and that can be all the way up to the executive level. Even the CEO, even the search for a new CEO is essentially run by the DEI slash HR function. And those individuals can have a much greater influence on who ends up leading the company and what the company's strategy and so forth will be uh, than in an era where hiring is more routine. Yeah, I think of this as the cocktail party effect. If you go to a cocktail party and you say that your job is filling out paperwork, that's not nearly as exciting as saying that you are empowering people to think about the world differently. Or if you go and say that your job is to flog Coca-Cola cans as a marketing manager, that's not quite as sexy as saying that you're saving the world. So obviously middle management is is a driving force, but the CEO and the C-suite still are very, very important. There's this emerging subset of CEOs, woke CEOs, uh, the two poster children in Australia, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian and Alan Joyce from Qantas. Is a woke worldview increasingly a box that boards are looking to tick when they're appointing CEOs? 
To some extent, yes. And some of that is a response to external pressure. One thing we didn't talk about in the paper and an area where we have gotten some useful, constructive engagement from critics is some people think that we should pay more attention to external pressure, for example, from asset management companies. You know, if Larry Fink wants mm. you to have a CEO with a certain profile, that can be a big deal, right? So woke asset management companies, woke institutional investors also put constraints on boards and on executives. Do boards want to have a woke CEO because that buys them something from the government, from credit ratings agencies, from the media? I mean, maybe to some extent. But what I think is more likely to be going on is that, you know, CEOs who are in place anyway, or the CEOs who would have been hired for sort of the conventional reasons, are more likely to to be woke or appear to be woke, partly, I don't want to call it woke washing exactly, but some of that may be a little bit of a PR move. A lot of executives are older white males, and the, yes. you know, they're from a different generation. They're not fully on board with the latest sort of woke jargon terminology, imagery, and so forth. They don't feel super comfortable with it. They don't completely understand it, but they do know it's, you know, what we used to call a third rail. You know, it's a real danger zone if you get it wrong. If you say the wrong thing in an earnings call or in a speech, if the company makes the wrong move in one of its documents or whatever, this could be a nightmare from the media, from government regulators, from, from boycotts and, and you know social media and so forth. So out of fear, they delegate much of that to those who are fully who are fully committed to wokeness. I mean, it's a little bit of a it's almost a catch-22, right? That or maybe I shouldn't call it a catch-22. Maybe it's more like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. If I'm a CEO, I've heard about this woke stuff. I'm not sure what it is. I don't want to get in trouble. So I'll just let my speechwriter, you know, work mm. closely with the uh, PR and DEI people to make sure what I say is politically correct. But then that reinforces the idea among the company's other stakeholders that the company is committed to wokeness, which further empowers and entrenches the woke enthusiasts who were sort of generating, you know, that content in the first place. So it's a, it's, it's a vicious circle or a virtuous circle, depending on your perspective. But it's kind of something that once it gets going, it's very hard to shift direction or change gears. Yes, I think that's a very logical assessment. Could an openly anti-woke person be appointed to a big company as CEO in the US or Australia tomorrow? I think it's highly unlikely, though there are a few anti-woke CEOs of smaller companies, privately held companies. In fact, you would expect, I mean, you know, just the contrarian effect. Ben and Jerry's was doing, you know, CSR before CSR was a thing. That was part of their brand, part of their identity. So one would expect to see a few companies, you know, being saying, hey, look, we're, we're going against the tide. You have a few, you know, there's TJ Rogers, who was the CEO of Cypress Semiconductor since the, know, back in the 80s and 90s. You know, I mean, woke wasn't a thing, but he was famously anti-politically correct yeah. in an era when political correctness was a thing. Um, I think it's unlikely, though. I mean, look, Fortune 500 companies are pretty conservative. I don't mean politically conservative. They don't like to rock the boat, especially on these kinds of issues. They don't want to be in the spotlight. So I think it's unlikely that the trend would be bucked in that manner. But I do find it interesting I don't know if it's also the case in Australia, but in the U.S., I mean, even just in the last two or three weeks there's been an increase in sort of calling it an anti-woke backlash, maybe a little bit too strong. But you have, for example, one of the 
leading Republican presidential candidates, DeSantis in Florida is, you know, explicitly campaigning that I'm the anti-woke guy. He uses the word woke. A lot of other critis- critics are explicitly using woke terminology as a, as a, you know, as a cudgel, as a criticism of wokeness. And interestingly enough, those who are the most woke are tending to retreat from the label they say, oh, that label is just a smear term. It doesn't accurately reflect what we believe. So I don't know that that means, I don't know what that means exactly, but there's certainly more discussion now than there was six months ago or a year ago about, yeah, maybe there are some downsides to you know woke extremism. And so it wouldn't surprise me. Actually, I can answer a slightly different way. There are a few um, asset management companies and a few CEOs particularly of investment firms, that they're not talking about woke, but they're talking a little bit about ESG. There are a few uh, investment companies that said, hey, we only look at financial returns. We will not sacrifice a penny of financial returns to achieve ESG or other goals. So there's a lively conversation in the financial services industry about whether ESG might potentially be counterproductive. That wasn't taking place one or two years ago. It was all ESG all the time. Mm, the uh, return of shareholder capitalism, music to my ears. Let's finish with the impact of going woke. Do you think that going woke has a net negative or a net positive effect on companies? Yeah, it's it's impossible to give a global answer to that because mm. there are so many different kinds of firms in different industries We don't have compelling evidence for an overall trend. There are clearly cases where going woke has had a negative effect on company performance. There are some cases where it's hard to tell or it it looks like wokeness may have even improved company performance. So, I mean, I think that's the right question to ask, but I think it's too early to be able to tell a general story about that. Indeed, with almost any corporate strategic change or cultural change, you know, whether it's... um, with these other things that we've been talking about, stakeholder models, CSR, or whether it's you know just a purely technical kind of practice like uh, the lean startup or you know total quality management, these things have different effects on different firms and different industries at different times. And that's one of the great things about capitalism, right? That you have a tremendous variety of different kinds of organizational models and structures. And I would expect nothing different here. I think it's perfectly fine. If uh, some organizations want to have an explicitly woke agenda, whether it's on the looking inward or, or, or customer facing, that, that's to be applauded. They should certainly been, be able to try that. Um, I don't think we should have policies, public policies. I don't think universities, consultants, whatever, the business press should be pushing all companies in one particular direction, certainly on this scale. If I could mention one other point that I should have, point I should have made earlier when you talked about CEO, we also mentioned in the paper, there is some benefit, practical benefit to CEOs of embracing wokeness. And it's it's analogous to discussions about ESG and CSR. Namely, since there is no generally agreed scale for measuring how woke a company is, if a CEO pledges commitment to wokeness, yet performance is poor, financial performance, the CEO can say, well, but we're not about financial performance. We're about wokeness and I'm doing great. I'm killing it. I'm hitting the baseball out of the park on my woke objectives. And when you ask for data or metrics to back this up, well, there are none. 
Yeah. So you know, some CEOs might prefer an environment with soft performance metrics to one with hard performance metrics because it, it makes them less accountable. Yes, virtue is an easier target to hit than annual turnover. Final question. I'm sitting in an office at the moment. I can see through the stained glass windows, employees walking all around me. And I think most of them would be uncomfortable having this conversation in the office. But at the same time, I think there is a huge amount of them who feel helpless, who feel like they don't buy into identity politics. They don't buy into its tools of indoctrination, like unconscious bias training. But they feel that if they speak their mind, they'll be ostracized or even worse, fired. Take off your academic hat for a moment and just speak as someone who knows a great deal about business and has spent a life analyzing businesses and employees. What would you say to those people? Well, everyone has to make his own decision about how, you know, how much, what kinds of risks one wants to take. And I I think your characterization is exactly right. I think there's, you know, to use the old Richard Nixon term, a silent majority Mm -hmm. of uh, employees and others who are not sympathetic to wokeness. But, you know, look, their priority is job security. Uh, They want to spend time with their friends and family. Why risk all that to make a public profession, you know, against, you know, sort of the, 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 the corporate religion of the day. But I think that just makes it more incumbent um, among people like you who have a public voice, to some extent, people like me, to try to you know, have these conversations in a way that shifts the Overton window, so-called, to where it is less risky to talk about these kinds of things, to where the average person feels empowered to say, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be kind to other people and I want everyone to have a fair shake in life and so forth, but the way you guys are pushing it is counterproductive. I don't support identity politics. I don't buy into this cultural Marxist narrative. I think it's incumbent upon us to be a little bit edgier, to make it easier for everyone else to talk about these things, you know, openly. They can say, well, I'm not an extremist like that guy on the Spectator podcast. (laughs) Good point about, you know, X, Y, or Z. (laughs) I'm happy to bear the extremist label if it means there is a broader courage culture that emerges as a result of it. Peter, this is such an important contribution to the discussion around workplace culture. You also have a new book out uh, written with your Why Companies Go Woke partner in crime, Nikolai Foss, and that's titled Why Managers Matter. Uh, I've got the book on my bedside table, ready to go. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for coming on, Australiana. It's It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a great conversation and look forward to opportunities to speak again. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get the first month absolutely free. That'll probably also be the case if you sign up tomorrow, but I'm told creating a sense of urgency is important in sales. Hooroo!